Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, we got a first glimpse of what will continue to escalate, and that's the constant harassment from the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. Jesus healed a man at Peter's house who was paralyzed, but before he did, he saved him from his sins. This guy who was paralyzed showed a lot of faith to get himself in front of Jesus. Peter's house was crowded. You couldn't even get in through the front door because it was so crowded. This man who was paralyzed had four friends carry him up on a stretcher. They carried him up on the roof, removed enough tiles to make an opening, and then lowered him down on the stretcher, laying him right in front of Jesus while he was teaching and healing others. Jesus accredited that act as a bold act of faith. Because the guy didn't hope he would get healed, he knew he'd get healed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone through the trouble. He not only showed confidence in Jesus' ability, he showed confidence in Jesus' willingness. It says that it was because of this man's faith and confidence in God through Jesus that he did these things. So before Jesus healed this guy of his physical paralysis, he saved his soul and said, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. Well, some religious leaders heard that and didn't like it because they knew that only God can forgive sins. No man has that kind of power or authority. Any man who thinks he's got that kind of power and authority is either self-deluded or insane. But the Old Testament, specifically Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, spoke of God's future rule over the planet Earth as a being who, when they saw him, they noticed that he looked human. God took them into the future so they could record their prophecies of the coming Messiah. Actually, the second coming is what they saw. And it says they saw one coming from the clouds who looked like a son of man. He looked human. That phrase, looked like a son of man, is what was actually written. So as time went by, whenever people talked about the coming of the Messiah, one of his titles was the Son of Man, because of the verbiage in the Old Testament. Prophecies concerning Jesus' birth said of his mother, A young woman who is unmarried and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's God with us. He's the only man who can forgive sins and remit their penalty because he's God in the flesh. The one who looks like a son of man to Daniel and Isaiah, he's the one standing here telling the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven and their penalty remitted. The religious leaders didn't get it. They thought Jesus was just another prophet like Moses or Elijah. God wielded all kinds of supernatural power through them, but at no time could Moses or Elijah forgive someone's sins and remit their penalty. So when they heard Jesus talk as though he could, that bothered them. They said to themselves, this man speaks blasphemy. It's easy to verbally say out loud, your sins are forgiven and their penalty permitted, but who can really forgive sins and remit their penalty except for God alone? Jesus heard that and said to them, what's easier, to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven and their penalty remitted, or to say, get up and walk? So that you may know that the Son of Man, see there's the tip-off, he's using that Old Testament title of himself to give them a clue. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive and remit sin. He then turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk home. The man instantly got up, a man who'd been paralyzed, folks. He got up, picked up his bed, and walked all the way home, praising and thanking God all the way. Well, the religious leaders weren't satisfied. Because later they found Jesus enjoying a banquet with his new disciple, Matthew. And Matthew was a former tax collector. I say former because he quit his job to follow Jesus. He was excited about this new venture, this new relationship. So he threw Jesus a party and invited all of his friends. So Jesus is reclining at the table with Matthew and all of his buddies. But because of Matthew's former vocation, his friends were notoriously known throughout the community as sinful people. 
And the religious leaders were the very first to bring this up. As Jesus is having a good time socializing with these folks, the religious leaders addressed Jesus' disciples. Now notice they didn't go to Jesus, but they said to his disciples, Why does your master eat and drink with people who are preeminently sinful? Jesus heard it and responded. He said to them, It is not those who are strong and healthy who need a physician, but those who are weak and sick. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. Now, when we read that, we might not notice the sarcasm here, but Jesus gave them a loaded statement because one of the most famous passages from the Old Testament was where Isaiah said of man's righteousness that to God they are as filthy rags. And that's the cleaned up King James version of that verse. That's not the version that was known to the people of Jesus' day. The original Hebrew said used minstrel cloths. God's view of what we would consider to be our own accomplished goals of righteousness is something that is disgustingly repulsive to God and makes him sick. So this little quip of Jesus' to the Pharisees is sort of a backhanded insult towards them. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. See, he knows that they know. The label sinners actually applies to everybody. We're all sinners. But if you don't think you're a sinner, if you think you've got all the answers, if you think you know everything and you've got your act together and everything's just perfect, then you don't need me. And Jesus didn't make a defense for those he was eating and drinking with either. They were every bit as bad as the religious leaders claimed. But they did have one thing in their favor that apparently the religious leaders didn't. When God looked down on them from heaven, he didn't see used minstrel cloths. He didn't see self-righteousness. Instead, he saw weak and sick people who needed a physician. And don't forget, Jesus was invited to eat and drink with them. That's why he was there. The Pharisees didn't invite him to eat and drink with them. Jesus could have answered their accusations with that. Why do you eat and drink with them? Well, because they invited me. I'm still waiting for your invitation. And that's really what's at the heart of all this, folks. Matthew and his buddies, in spite of all their wrongdoings, in spite of their lifestyles, they weren't so short-sighted that they didn't recognize their own need of Jesus' company. The Pharisees, however, were too self-assured of themselves and too arrogant to recognize that need. So they lost that argument and did what all skilled debaters do when they lose an argument, and that's change the subject. They said, well, the Pharisees and their disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist are currently praying and fasting. Why aren't you? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, Jesus used that title that John the Baptist gave him, since they're the ones who brought John the Baptist up. If you remember, before John was arrested and he was still baptizing folks, once more people started flocking to Jesus after he began his public ministry, John's disciples got upset. But John told them, hey, this isn't a bad thing, this is great. I did my part as the groomsman to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. Now that the bridegroom is here, I must quietly decrease. So Jesus tells these religious leaders the wedding guests can't mourn while the bridegroom is still with them. There'll be plenty of time for mourning and fasting when the bridegroom is taken away, and he will be taken away. Jesus is hinting at what's coming. He will be arrested, crucified, and buried in a tomb for three days. There's going to be a lot of mourning and fasting when that happens, but not now and not yet. The wedding guests can't mourn and fast while the bridegroom is still with them. And that's where we left off last time, folks. And the next reported event is recorded only by John. It's Jesus' second public appearance in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It's been a year since his last trip to Jerusalem where he threw out the merchants and money changers from the temple court and got questioned by the religious leaders there for doing so. 
That was a year ago before anybody knew who he was. Things are much different now. And it's Passover. So Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And what transpires there is recorded only by John in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 47. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem is a pool near the Sheep Gate. This pool in the Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches or doorway alcoves. In these lay a great number of sick folk, some blind, some crippled, some paralyzed, withered up, and waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel of the Lord went down at appointed seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then stepped in first was cured of whatever disease they had. Now, folks, if you look closely, you'll notice that your Bible may have this last verse omitted. Look closely. You'll see the verses numbered, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and then verse 5. Other translations leave it in, but then put in italics with a special note at the bottom of the page, saying that many manuscripts omit the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. And folks, they do this with good reason. There is something extremely suspicious about the presence of this verse. In comparison to the rest of the entire Bible, this verse has an extremely out-of-place feel to it. This type of activity isn't confirmed anywhere else in the Bible. No other place in the Bible do we hear of angels healing anyone. And we certainly don't have any other place in the Bible where God has set up a place for a seasonal visit from an angel to perform miracles. The idea that God would set up an area for people to show up and be healed by an angel seems to go against the way he does things throughout the rest of the whole Bible. You don't go to an angel, you go to him. You don't worship angels, you worship him. You don't seek angels for healing, you don't do stuff like that. Angels don't do stuff like this. They're appointed messengers and soldiers of God performing specific orders. This scenario here doesn't make any sense in comparison to what we think we know about God and angels all throughout the rest of the Bible. As a matter of fact, this verse almost sounds pagan. So, what's it doing here? Well, when the Bible was translated into English during the 17th century, the King James translators made noble attempts to keep to the original source materials, which were in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And the reason why was because the medieval church era with their Latin translations, had corrupted biblical doctrine with, guess what? Angel worship. There was a heavy emphasis on angels from the medieval church era that was never biblical. So when the first English translators tried to translate the Bible into English, they never used the Latin Vulgate unless they had to. When they could, they stuck completely to the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. But it's a common view, no one knows for certain, but it is a common view that this little excerpt here, about the angel healing people at the pool, is one of those areas where the King James translators didn't go far enough to get rid of the medieval corruption. That's why some of your more modern English translations take it out completely. But then why do others keep it in? Well, that's another story. Soon after the original Bible was completed in the very first century, there was a cultic New Age type group known as the Gnostics. Not agnostic, but Gnostic. They held a lot of strange views and claimed to be the owners of special, unique, supernatural knowledge of hidden things. And it was around that time period that they created their own Bible translation. And they stealthily removed key verses attempting to hide the deity of Christ and then inserted verses advancing deity to elsewhere. Now that translation didn't last very long. It was easily refuted and debunked and done away with it forgotten. Long forgotten, that is, until 2,000 years later, 
when modern English translations were being drafted post-King James era, and as they went back to the original text to remaster it into the modern English, aided with those original texts, they relied heavily on a recent archaeological find of a translation of the Bible from the first century. They got excited and said, wow, we, we got an original copy from the first century, not knowing that it was one of the Gnostic Bibles. And it's from that that we have the NIV translation, by the way. Other modern translations don't rely on it too heavily, but the NIV did, to its embarrassment, because all throughout the NIV are missing verses that they thought should have been removed because they didn't exist in the source material they discovered from the first century. Turns out that source material from the first century was a first century fraud. All throughout the NIV Bible, and not just the NIV, but some others, you'll find verses highlighted in italics with a note saying, Earlier translations don't have this verse, implying that it doesn't belong. The earlier translations the NIV is referring to are the Gnostic Bible, a first century fraud. And we'll cover those when we get to them. There's not too many of them, but they are well known, so it's real easy to spot. And the NIV has admitted to all of this. That's why they're currently attempting to update it and come out with a new NIV only where they're going in the right direction. In some cases, they're failing miserably in others by changing certain words that are male-dominant to sound more neutral when that's not what the original states. In other words, they're attempting to be more politically correct. So while they're correcting old mistakes, they're making new ones, which is why I don't like the NIV. I don't like the old one. It doesn't sound like I'm going to like the new one. And it's unfortunate that it somehow, the NIV somehow, has become the most popular translation. It's always promoted first in all the Christian bookstores. I think that's interesting. Anyway, it's because of those embarrassing mistakes of taking out verses that were meant to be left alone that some Bible translations won't remove this verse about the angel, but will instead just make a note of it, saying that many manuscripts do not contain this verse. Now, the presence of this verse, to the best of my knowledge, has got nothing to do with the Gnostic Bible because the original King James translators had this in their version 300 years before the NIV came out with all of their errors. And yet anyone with a decent grasp of the whole Bible can see that it doesn't belong. So what do you do with this? Well, the entire Bible in its original was written by the Holy Spirit like a high-definition picture screen. Each verse is a single pixel on the whole screen. How can you tell if one of those pixels doesn't belong? Easy. You just back away from the screen to get a grasp of the whole picture. You don't sit two inches away from the screen and examine that one pixel. You just back up from the whole screen and look at the whole picture. If it makes the picture sharper, then you know it fits. If it's causing interference, if it's sticking out like a sore thumb, then you know it doesn't belong. God spent thousands of years creating the Bible with the possibility of this kind of interference in mind. So he spread out his whole message on a large bandwidth to preserve the integrity of the whole message. That way, if an original verse is missing, or if an intruding verse is present, the whole picture is still clear. You, know, you might lose some sharpness, you might find it distracting, but the image itself has not been lost. So don't let stuff like this lower your confidence in the integrity of the whole picture. And that's really what the whole point is. If you want to know more about all of this, listen to that first podcast that we did for Founding Word called The Science of God and How He Got a Message to His Creation. God personally anticipated little problems like the one we're facing here. And even though it sounds like a big deal, the more you see how God put the Bible together, it's really not that big a deal. It's my personal view that the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is pagan interference. I'm not saying that's what you should think, because I could be totally wrong. 
To be completely honest, I really don't know. But there is something brought up a couple of verses later that fits with this verse about the angel, and it's the primary argument from many why they think this verse is legit. But I don't know. In comparison to the rest of the Bible, this kind of activity isn't given any confirmation. There's no other history to corroborate this. It's a total mystery. Nobody knows why it's there or how it got there. A lot of commentators think that the verse isn't a fraud, but may be an explanation for a commonly held view about the pool at that time. In other words, an angel didn't really enter the pool and stir up the waters so that the first to enter afterwards would be healed, but for whatever reason, that was a commonly held view about the pool at that time, kind of like the fabled fountain of youth. But if that's the case, then what we have is a legitimate verse in which a couple of words are missing. It should have said they believed or they thought an angel entered the pool and stirred up the waters and so forth. But how this verse in its present form got there, or why, doesn't matter because it doesn't really damage the integrity of the whole picture. If you leave this verse alone the way it is, it doesn't change the point of the chapter. If you take it out, it still doesn't change anything. So I'm going to go ahead and just read it for you both ways and then let you make up your own minds about this. With that verse included, it reads, Now there in Jerusalem is a pool near the Sheep Gate. This pool in the Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches or doorway alcoves. In these lay a great number of sick folk, some blind, some crippled, some paralyzed, and some withered up waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel of the Lord went down at appointed seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then stepped in first was cured of whatever disease they had. There was a certain man there who had suffered a deep-seated lingering disorder for 38 years. And he's the focus of this chapter, not the pool. If you take the portion about the angel out, it reads, Now there in Jerusalem is a pool near the Sheep Gate. This pool in the Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches or doorway alcoves. In these lay a great number of sick folks, some blind, some crippled, some paralyzed, and some withered up. And there was a certain man there who had suffered a deep-seated lingering disorder for 38 years. When Jesus noticed him lying there helpless, knowing that he had already been there in that condition for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to become well? The invalid answered, Sir, when the water is moving, I have nobody to put me into the pool. But while I am trying to come into it myself, somebody else steps down ahead of me. Now, folks, it's because of his response to Jesus that some think the angel verse is legitimate because it sounds like it's the reason he was there. He wanted to be healed by the angel in the pool, but couldn't get to it because others got there first. And because of that, he can't get well. That's his complaint. Yeah, I want to be well, but I can't become well because others get to the pool before I can. That's the feel of what he's saying. But without the angel verse, it takes on a little different meaning that actually makes more sense to me personally. This is just my view. Jesus asked, do you want to become well? And this is just the invalid's way of saying yes. Yes, I'd like to become well, because if I were, then I'd be able to get to the water like everybody else does. But because I'm an invalid, I can't. See the difference? But either way, it still works for the point of the story. The point is, he's an invalid. Jesus asked him, do you want to become well? And the answer is yes. So Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Instantly, the man became well and recovered his strength and picked up his bed and walked. But that happened on the Sabbath day. So the Jewish religious leaders kept saying to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. You have no right to pick up your bed. It's not lawful. He answered them, The man who healed me gave me back my strength and made me whole. He said to me, Pick up your bed and walk. 
they asked him, Who's the man who told you to pick up your bed and walk? Now the invalid who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had quietly gone away and passed by unnoticed, since there was a crowd there at the place. Later Jesus searched him out and found him in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Let something worse come upon you. Now that's an interesting statement from Jesus, folks. It implies that whatever the infirmity was that this guy had for 38 years, it was brought about by personal sin. He did something 38 years ago, or perhaps over a long period of time, to bring about his infirmity, his lameness, which lasted 38 years. So Jesus said, Sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Now, because of what Jesus said, some people think that all diseases, all cancer, is the direct result of personal sin. And, of course, that line of reasoning follows with the idea that a life absent of sin will be free from all forms of illness. But I think Job would have something to say about that. So would Paul. This idea that sickness is always the direct result of personal sin is not biblical. Now, it can be. You know, if you sleep around all the time, you'll probably wind up with an STD. If you're sniffing glue every day, you're probably going to wind up with brain cancer. And there is something to be said about a person who lives a habitual life of continual sin. It does have physical repercussions. It causes depression, and depression lowers the immunity. And, of course, sickness and death as a whole is the result of the very first sin ever committed by Adam in the Garden of Eden. But to say that every disease, every cold that a person gets is the direct result of that person's sin, that's ridiculous. Completely non-biblical. But this guy here apparently did do something 38 years ago that brought about his lame paralysis. So after being healed, Jesus said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. The man went away and told the Jewish religious leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, they began to persecute Jesus and sought to kill him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father hasn't ceased working. He has worked until now and is still working, and I work too. See, the religious leaders of that time, as well as today, folks, in many respects, had a misconception about the Sabbath day. The word Sabbath is just the Hebrew word for seventh, the seventh day, the Sabbath day. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation scenario where God spends days 1 through 6 creating the universe. Now, there's a big debate about whether or not those verses are talking about a recreation. Some believe that God created the entire universe complete and finished in one single act described in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And that it was between that verse and the rest of the whole chapter that the rebellion of Satan and a third of the angels took place. That war between God and the fallen angels and its repercussions are all talked about in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 18. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 to 18, and Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 26. And many believe, they don't know for certain, but many believe that the events described in those verses took place between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And that what we consider to be the week of creation is actually a repair job. Now, whether or not that's true doesn't really matter. That view is what is known as the gap theory. The theory itself has some holes in it, and it's amazing how upset people can get debating over silly little things like this. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. The point is, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the famous creation week. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
So the work of creation was done. It didn't say work was done, but the work of creation was done. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And then in verse 2 it says, On the seventh day, or Sabbath day in the Hebrew, God ended his work which he had made. Now what does that mean? He ended his work. If it was finished on the sixth day, now it's the seventh, what does it mean he ended his work? It says he ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. The word rest there is commonly thought of as a period of relaxing or taking a break from hard work, as though God got tired and needed a break. But that's the futility of the English language with all its many synonyms getting in the way again. Those of you who play musical instruments and can read music know of a funny-looking squiggly line that's put on the music staff to indicate a point of ceasing. It's called a rest. Does it mean you're sitting back from the piece you're performing? No, it just means at that particular point in the song, you pause until the next note or next measure or whatever. It doesn't mean the song is over. You are, with purpose, ceasing from the note, the chord, the sequence you were doing before, to maintain the integrity of the whole song. See, the work of creation was already finished after the closing of the sixth day. So there, where it says in the English that on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day, the original Hebrew text there says that God imposed a repose on the universe. Many Jewish scientists believe that what that's talking about there is God finalizing and establishing the scientific laws as we know them. That's their view of what the original Hebrew means, that God imposed a repose on the universe. Imagine it like winding up a mechanical clock, the older clocks, which I didn't know about until recently, to the frustration of my mom, because I ruined an older clock that she had. There's a lever that holds the forward motion of the gears so that you can wind up the clock. If you try to wind it up while it's in motion, it tears it up. And many scientists view the six days of creation as a work in motion. The gravitational pull of new stars and the spreading out of galaxies in space-time, the zeroing in on life itself being formed on the Earth, the moving of land and sea, all this creative work actually taking place inside some form of space-time while everything's spinning and in flux, gravity, time, everything. Kind of like a pottery wheel that's constantly turning while the potter is forming the clay. But then after the work was done, all of the motion was stopped, like God pulling the lever on a mechanical clock and now winding it up. Is that what the original Hebrew means when it says God imposed a repose on the heavens and the earth? If that's true, then the next verse makes a whole lot more sense. Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. Folks, all my life I never understood why God would set apart the seventh day because it was the day that he didn't do anything. That never made any sense to me. But that's kind of the way we were all taught it. But actually, it's the day that everything got started. Kind of like the cutting of the ribbon of a new establishment. It's the day that God pulled the lever on the mechanical clock that is our universe and wound it up and then turned it loose. And all the mechanical parts of our universe, from the massive galaxies to the tiny little atoms, have been tick-tocking like gears, wheels, and pulleys ever since. The seventh day is an anniversary of God finalizing the universe, the heavens, and the earth. That's why the wording of the fourth commandment is, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember which Sabbath? The first one. It's an anniversary. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does the word holy mean? 
We use that word a lot, but what does it mean? It means perfect. God created the heavens and the earth on days one through six, then on day seven, he made it perfect. Of course, the universe was imperfected by Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then a curse was put upon it, so we've never seen the creation as it was originally built. We get hints of it here and there, but on that first Sabbath day, God made it perfect and set it in motion. He cut the ribbon of the grand opening. He opened the doors. The fourth commandment says, remember the seventh day to keep it perfect. But God hasn't stopped working. We have a multitude of verses all throughout the Old and New Testaments that mention God's continuing intervention and attention to the workings of the clock that is our universe. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, In Him all things, not most things, but all things are held together. Today's scientists can't figure out why many galaxies in the universe don't fly apart. They've measured the blue shift and the red shift, and they've figured out how fast their rotations are, and they've plugged those figures into formulas comparing them with the amount of mass that composes them, and with that they can't figure out what's holding them together. According to these scientists, many of those galaxies should be collapsing in on themselves because the mass is too great, but most of them should be flying apart, and that's the even bigger mystery, what's holding them together. Well, Colossians tells us, it says, in him all things are held together. But that requires faith, not science. So they've come up with some scientific theories called dark matter and dark energy, which is fancy terminology for matter and energy that cannot be seen or proven, yet must exist because something is holding the galaxies together, while something else is propelling them at speeds they can't account for. Funny how that's considered science, but Colossians isn't. That's faith. If I were a scientist, I would write on my chalkboard that E equals MC squared and dark matter and dark energy equals Colossians 117. But anyway, the point is, when God rested, it wasn't because he was tired. Isaiah says that God wearies not. God didn't stop being God on the seventh day. He didn't stop maintaining the universe. He didn't stop doing the work that God does. He finished the creation, yes. He rested from the work of creation and set it all in motion. But God didn't stop being God over the universe. That's what Jesus means here in John chapter 5, verse 17, when he tells the Jewish religious leaders who accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. He said, My father hasn't ceased working. He has worked until now. He's still working, and I work too. Well, this made the Jewish leaders more determined than ever to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was actually speaking of God as being, in a special sense, his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus answered them by saying, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, the Son is able to do nothing of his own accord, but he is able to do only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In other words, folks, concerning all action and all doing, the Father and the Son are on the same page. There isn't an outside will at work here. They're in full agreement with each other. We talked about that in previous sessions. The Son chose to come. He wasn't ordered. He volunteered. He chose to come. The Father chose to let him. John 3.16 says he gave him up. The Father and the Son are on the same page concerning the goal of this mission, all action and all doing and all communicating and everything in between. Verse 20. Jesus says, The Father dearly loves the Son and shows him everything he does. In English, we have several different meanings that we put behind the word love, so when it's used in the Bible, the original Greek gets lost in translation. The English says the Father dearly loves the Son. The Greek word that was translated love there is phileo, which is the Greek word for a love between equals. Ooh, how 
How do you think the Pharisees felt about him using that word? The Father dearly loves the Son and shows him everything that he does, and he will show greater things than these, so that you may marvel and be full of wonder and astonishment. Just as the Father raises up the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wills and is pleased to give it. For the Father judges no one, because he has given all judgment and the whole business of judging entirely into the hands of the Son, so that all men may give honor to the Son just as they give honor to the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, the person whose ears are open to my words and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under condemnation, but has already passed over death into life. Notice he's telling them how to pass over death into life on the day of the Jewish Passover, folks. The day they commemorate that historical evening in which death passed over the house of Israel the night before they were set free from Egyptian slavery. God sent a plague that covered Egypt that night, and all the firstborn of every man and every beast was killed. The only way to protect your firstborn was to paint lamb's blood on your door in the shape of a cross. Those were the orders that God gave them to escape his wrath. They didn't know what it meant, but it's interesting with New Testament hindsight and play here that the only thing that could save your firstborn in Egypt when God sent the angel of death was to display a symbol of the death of God's firstborn on your door. With that symbol on your door, your firstborn was saved. And the night that all of that happened was commemorated throughout Jewish history as the Passover. It was the event that finally broke Pharaoh's will, and he set the slaves free. Interesting symbolism all the way around. And here we have the Jews commemorating that event with their annual Passover feast, and Jesus is telling them how to pass over death into eternal life by believing on him who sent me, he says, God's firstborn. And notice the tense here. It doesn't say that he who believes will pass over death. It says he has already passed over death. If you can be born again and then lose your salvation for whatever reason, then what Jesus said here isn't true. The debate about eternal security is over. Now, don't get me wrong. You can take the doctrine of eternal security and go too far with it and turn it into a license to sin. That's not biblical. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that once you're saved, you can do whatever you want and get away with it. Cause and effect is still in force. All sins have natural consequences to them. That's why God labels them sin to begin with. And no loving father, be it God or otherwise, would allow his misbehaving child to go undisciplined. Discipline is an act of parental love for the health and benefit of the child. But the idea that you can do something to forfeit the promise of eternal life is not biblical. And this isn't open for debate. Either you believe what Jesus said or you don't. He said, the person whose ears are open to my words and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and will not come under condemnation. He didn't say hopefully not, or maybe not, or shouldn't, provided all things continue a certain way. He said he will not come under condemnation, but has already passed over death into life. Period. Verse 25. Believe me when I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, the time is coming and is here now, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. For even as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, 
And he's given him authority and granted him power to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Notice the parallel. First he calls himself the Son of God. When he says the dead, he's talking about spiritual death, those not reborn. He says the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. But then he uses the title Son of Man and says as the Father has life in himself, he has given to the Son to have life in himself, meaning a life to give up. And the Father has given the Son authority and granted him power to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, because he's human. And this goes back to what happened when Jesus went to the Jordan to be baptized. John the Baptist didn't understand why he'd want to do this because he's the Son of God, you know. But Jesus said, permit it just now, for this is the proper way for both of us to do what's right. But what was right about it? I mean, if Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God, what's right about presenting yourself for a baptism of repentance when you have nothing to repent of? It's because at that moment, he was presenting himself to the Father as a representative of the human race. If you were going to elect someone to represent the human race to God, who would you want to fill those shoes? Who would you want to put your confidence in to represent you to God and do so without getting us all killed, right? Well, Jesus is the perfect go-between. He represents the Father to the human race, and the title of that position is the Son of God. But he also represents the human race as one of us to the Father. And the title of that role is the Son of Man. He's one of us. So he says, continuing on, verse 25, Believe me when I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, the time is coming and is here now, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. For even as the Father has life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority and granted him power to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be surprised and wonder at this, for the time is coming when all those who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, and they shall come out, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, folks, what in the world does all of that mean? Those who were in the tombs, in the grave? It's not talking about spiritual death there. The earlier verse was, but this here is clearly talking about those who have already died physically, and they've been buried. They're in tombs. Now, if that wasn't weird enough, he adds to that and says that they shall hear his voice and they shall come out, and then he tells them what for. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. What in the world is all of this about? Now, folks, this is important. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of crazy, weird ideas out there because of some simple problems of basic classification that get overlooked or ignored right here in these verses. So let's look at this slowly and carefully. From verse 25 to verse 29, Jesus addresses two separate groups of people who were dead. The second group he divides in half. So there's really three groups here. But let's just take this one step at a time. Group number one. The first group of dead he addresses in verse 25. This group of dead are physically still alive. They still live and breathe on the surface of the planet. They still have five senses and walk the earth as living, breathing human beings. They have body and soul. But they have no spirit. 
They are spiritually dead in their sins. That's why they need a spiritual rebirth. This is the first group of the dead. Now concerning group one, Jesus said the time is coming and is now here. Meaning the moment Jesus is speaking. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it shall live. That's John 3.16 all over again. When he said the time is coming and is now here. The word now concerns the people who were saved right there in front of Jesus as he walked the earth. The woman at the well, the whole town of Sychar, the paralyzed man at Peter's house, etc. They were dead in their sins. They had no spirit, but they heard the voice of the Son of God. They were reborn in the Holy Spirit, and now they live. And when their physical body dies, they will immediately be taken into heaven. And that's been going on for the last 2,000 years. So that's what Jesus means when he says the time is coming and is now here. In other words, it hasn't been like this before. This hasn't happened before. It's starting now, and it will continue. And it has continued for the past 2,000 years. This is the first group Jesus is talking about. Those who physically live but are spiritually dead, but then hear the voice of the Son of God and are spiritually reborn. That's group number one, and it's a group that started in Jesus' day. That's why he said the time is coming and is now here, meaning up until now, this hasn't happened before. So what of all the people who died before Jesus came to the earth? And this is where group number two comes into focus. The second group of the dead are made up of the people who, at the very moment Jesus is speaking, are physically dead. Their bodies are in graves and in tombs. And that doesn't just cover the people who were physically dead of Jesus' day, but prior to Jesus, all the way back to Adam. Verse 28, Jesus said, The time is coming when all those who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, and they shall come out, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now notice, unlike group number one, Jesus doesn't use the phrase, The time is coming and is now here. He just says, The time is coming. So what's going to happen in that time? Whenever it is, he says they shall come out unto the resurrection. But then he splits that group of resurrected people into two other groups. Those who are resurrected unto life, and those who are resurrected unto damnation. Which after reading that, if you're like me, probably more confused than you were before. And that confusion comes from growing up in a New Testament age without very much Old Testament education. Have you ever wondered what happened to the souls of the good people from the Old Testament who didn't have Jesus' blood to trust in? Like Abraham, Noah, where did their souls go when they died? Well, they went to heaven. Not without the blood of Jesus, they didn't. Well, then they must have gone to hell, but only temporarily. No, that's not true either. You know, not only are we handicapped by not having an adequate Old Testament education, but we're also victims of a lot of what I call Christian folklore. We cram everything that pertains to the afterlife into two categories, heaven and hell. But did you know that there are actually five different places that get translated into our English Bibles as heaven and hell? Do the math. That doesn't add up, does it? Heaven and hell are two places. But those two words in English are translated from five different words in the original Greek and Hebrew. And I want to get into this now because it's pivotal to understanding what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Now, obviously, the word heaven or heavens can apply to the sky or outer space, and we'll exclude that. 
I don't want to get into that. I just want to focus primarily on planes of existence that we would call the afterlife, which that in itself is inadequate. Life on Earth should actually be called the before life, because even if we live to be 100 years old, we haven't even scratched the surface in comparison to eternity. But anyway, let's focus on the two primary places that we're familiar with and then work our way up from there. Heaven is the domain, the capital, if I can use that word, of God's kingdom. It's the location of the Father's throne. It does not exist anywhere inside our space-time domain. It is completely outside our dimension of reality, and it surpasses our laws of physics. We all know about that, and I don't think there's really too much confusion about that. Hell is a different story, though. A lot of different and distinct places of existence that all get translated as hell in our English Bibles. First of all, hell is not a kingdom of Satan's. It is a future prison for Satan, his angels, and any human being who chooses to go there with them. And make no mistake about that, they are not deceived into going there. They know they're going there. They've bought their tickets. They've had them stamped. It's a done deal for them, and they know it and don't want it any other way. Now, as hard as it is to believe that, it's true. We've gotten into that before, and we'll get into it later. This is where the lake of fire is. It's what we really think of when we use the word hell. In the original Greek, the word for this place is Gehenna. Remember that word, Gehenna. Remember it to avoid further confusion. When we think of hell, what we're thinking of is Gehenna. Now, there's another place of existence that gets translated hell in our English Bibles that's not Gehenna. It's called the Abuso. In the Greek, it's called Tartarus. And it's the name for what the Bible calls the bottomless pit. It's the place where the angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6 are currently imprisoned right now. It's also from where the Antichrist comes. We often try to combine all of these places together as one when they're really different places. The Abuso, a.k.a. Tartarus, a.k.a. the bottomless pit, have got nothing to do with Gehenna. This is a demonic realm. There are no human souls there. There have never been any human souls there and never will be. When it comes to the domain of the departed human souls, we know of Gehenna. That's hell. Heaven we know. We know about those two places. But our real confusion comes from not knowing about a third place. There is a third place that's often mistranslated in our English Bibles as heaven in some cases. And in other cases, it's translated hell, believe it or not. The same place. And this is where a lot of confusion comes from. In the original Hebrew, the name of the place is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. In the Greek, the name of the place is Hades, H-A-D-E-S. Sheol and Hades are the same place. Those are just two different languages, Hebrew and Greek. This place that we're talking about here is the place that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. From the time of Adam all the way up to the time of Jesus Christ, this was the place where departed souls went when their physical bodies died. Now inside this place, called Sheol in the Hebrew and Hades in the Greek, there are two compartments that are separated by a huge gulf. One compartment is known throughout the Old Testament as paradise. Other labels for it are Abraham's bosom. This was the compartment where the faithful souls of the deceased from the Old Testament period lived after they physically died. 
And with a name like Paradise, I don't think it's a bad place to be. But it's not heaven. It gets translated heaven in our English Bibles, but the Father's throne is nowhere near it. Next to the border of this place called Paradise, also known as Abraham's bosom, is a huge gulf, and on the other side of that gulf is a place of constant torment. And it's where the unfaithful go. And because it's a place of torment for the unfaithful, it gets translated hell in our English Bibles. But it's not Gehenna. And we'll get into all of this when we get to Luke chapter 16. Because in Luke 16, Jesus brings up a conversation that took place between two guys who were separated by a big gulf. One of them was in paradise. The other was in torment. That's in Luke 16. And I'm sorry, but when we get to heaven, I don't think we'll be holding conversations with people who are in hell. And I know they won't be having conversations with us. They won't have any contact with us. So this conversation that Jesus brings up in Luke 16 isn't taking place in heaven or hell. It's taking place in Sheol, with the torment on one side of it, paradise on the other. The paradise isn't heaven, and the place of torment is not Gehenna. At the time of Jesus Christ, nobody has gone to Gehenna yet. Nobody. And neither had anyone gone to heaven either. Remember John chapter 3, verse 13? Jesus said, No man has ever gone up to heaven, but there is one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. Remember him saying that? Remember John's introduction to his own gospel in John chapter 1? He said, No man has ever seen God except for the Son of God. See, no human being had either been in Gehenna or heaven. Not yet. They were all in this place called Sheol. So as Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, getting back to verse 28 and 29, as he's speaking to them, there is a place called Sheol in the Hebrew and Hades in the Greek where all the departed souls of every human being from Jesus' day all the way back to Adam. Jesus is telling these religious leaders that a time is coming when all those who were in the tombs shall hear his voice, and they shall come out. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So basically, this place is a temporary dwelling place for the departed of Jesus' day and prior to that. Jesus is saying a time is coming, doesn't say when it is, but he says a time is coming when both compartments will be emptied out and the occupants will be moved to either heaven or Gehenna. Now, some people think that this is where the Catholic doctrine of purgatory got started. I don't know if that's true or not. It might be. It sounds plausible. But I haven't studied Catholic doctrine or Protestant doctrine for that matter. I only study the Bible. But anyway, this third place, known as Sheol in the Hebrew, or Hades in the Greek, is not of concern to New Testament church age believers. That's why Jesus started all of this off in verse 25 by saying a time is coming and is now here that people will actually get their ticket reservation for heaven before they physically die. That's the whole point of all this, folks. Until Jesus came, when a person died, they either went to the paradise side of Sheol or the tormenting side of Sheol and had to wait. Of course, the next question is, when was this place emptied? Jesus said, a time is coming. Has it happened yet? And if it did, when? One view is that those from Abraham's bosom gets emptied out and taken to heaven after the Antichrist is defeated. And then the tormented side gets emptied out and sent to Gehenna along with Satan and his angels after Christ's rule for a thousand years over the earth. 
Another view is that those from Abraham's bosom were emptied during the three-day period in which Jesus was dead, between the time he died on the cross and before he was resurrected on the third day. A lot of views with biblical evidence to back them all up, but all that is way too far out for this discussion. We've got enough can of worms to worry about without the content of that. The point is, heaven and hell are eternal, while Sheol, Hades, that whole place with two compartments, one being paradise, a.k.a. Abraham's bosom, and the other being a place of torment, that place is temporary. It holds the Old Testament believers, if I can use that phrase, and all of history's non-believers. It does not concern us, because when we hear the voice of the Son of God, when we're reborn in the Holy Spirit, we're waiting for our physical body to die so that we can immediately enter the throne room of heaven and be with our Lord forever. But so that you'd understand what Jesus is talking about here to these religious leaders, I had to go back and get into all of this other stuff so you'd be able to make sense out of all of it, because when I first read it, I was stupefied. You know, what did he mean by the resurrection of damnation? Sounds like an oxymoron. What he meant was the moving of the tormented souls from Hades into Gehenna. What did he mean by the resurrection of life? He meant the moving of the faithful souls from Abraham's bosom into heaven. When it happens, and what stages, and why, I don't know. I don't want to get into that right now. The point is, both the faithful and unfaithful who are in Sheol or Hades fall into group two. That's verse 28 and 29. Group 1 is about us. That's verse 25. Two groups. Group 1 was born while Jesus was here and still lives to this day. Those who were alive physically, but dead spiritually until hearing the voice of the Son of God. That's group 1. Group 2 was born the day Adam's son Abel died. And it consisted of all those who physically died, both good and bad, prior to Jesus' statement here in verse 28 and 29. Let me back up and read both verses without interjecting anymore so you'll not lose the context and then we'll keep moving. Verse 25. Jesus says, Believe me when I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, the time is coming and is here now, when the spiritually dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. For even as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority and granted him power to execute judgment because he is a son of man. Do not be surprised and wonder at this, for the time is coming when all those who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. And they shall come out, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. I can, of mine own self, do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who testifies concerning me, and I know that his evidence on my behalf is true. You sent an inquiry to John, and he's been a witness to the truth, but I receive not a mere testimony from man. However, I say these things to you, in order that you might be saved. John was the lamp that kept burning and shining to show you the way, and you were willing for a while to delight yourselves in his light. But I have as my witness something higher and weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very same works that I am doing now, are a witness and evidence that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have neither heard his voice or seen his shape, and you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, you believe him not. You search and investigate and pour over the scriptures diligently because you trust that you have eternal life through them. 
But these very scriptures testify of me. And still you are not willing, but refuse to come to me, so that you might have life eternal. I receive no honor from men. But I know you, and that you don't have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Ooh, who's he talking about there, folks? This coming spring, 2010, Israel is about to get started performing temple sacrifices again, like they did 2,000 years ago. They haven't been able to do this since before 70 A.D. They're about to get started again, but they're real worried about terrorism. They're waiting for a leader to show up to resolve their problem for them. And not just any leader, but a supernatural one. Meanwhile, Islam, their biggest threat, is also waiting for a supernatural prophetic leader to solve their problems. The Bible prophesizes that the Antichrist will get the acceptance, the approval, and the following of the whole world. That includes Israel, Islam, the Hindus, the Wiccans, the New Agers, the UFO cults, the scientific community, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and even a group that calls themselves the church. Now, they won't really be the church, but you can't tell them that. Anyway, the point is, for a time, the whole world will receive him, including Israel. Jesus told these Pharisees, I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How is it possible for you to believe, you who seek out and receive honor from one another, but do not seek out honor which comes from God only? Now, folks, this last statement of Jesus's is where he goes in for the kill. This is the way Jesus ends his argument with these religious leaders. This whole discussion started with the religious leaders accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. They were skilled scholars of the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And from that, they've built their rigid legalism and got into the habit of being bound to the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. I mean, come on, Jesus can't even heal a man on the Sabbath? That's what started all of this. But Jesus ends it this way. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who already accuses you. It is Moses, the very one on whom you have built your hopes and in whom you trust. For if you believed and relied on Moses, you would believe and rely on me. For he wrote about me personally. But if you don't believe his writings, how shall you believe my words? And that's how John leaves this discourse there. That's the end of chapter 5 and the end of that conversation and the end of today's show. Enjoyed it. We'll see you next week, folks. Take care.